0: Well, here we are at the end of the official last vacation week of the so-called summer. I think it was, I don't know, something else, monsoonal period here in New Orleans. Um, And it's been a rough last week. It wasn't just, you know, take a break week. It was um, some crazy things happened, including an accident in my family uh, with a car that decided to drive itself someplace, and it wound up in a tree. Everybody's alive, but it was pretty scary. Um, But the person who's not alive now is Moon Landrew and I am going to miss this man enormously. He was part of my earliest days here in New Orleans. I worked with him politically, and then as a reporter, I covered him for five years and known him ever since. And when I really wanted to know what was going on, there are two people in town, one of whom isn't talking to me right now, and the other was Moon. I have a lovely interview that I did with him uh, some time ago, um, I think it was about 2017, talking about his experience as mayor, and I think that you will enjoy it as I did. Okay, best of times and worst of times.
1: Well, it was the worst of times in the sense that City Hall was still totally segregated, everything above the broom and mop level. But it was the best of time because we had, the uh, federal government had passed the civil rights legislation and uh, and society was on the move to make changes. So in addition to that, the federal government was giving cities money in order to help us progress. So from that standpoint, it was the best of times and worst of times and we tried to make the best of it.
0: So. It was also a time when you um, introduced many African-Americans to city government. You basically invited them in to work with you, to help you. Why did you do that, and, and what was the effect of that on, on your administration?
1: Well, I was raised by, in a rather poor neighborhood. I had a wonderful mother and father. Dad had only a third-grade education and mother probably uh, one or two years of high school. But then I went to Jesuit High School and Loyola University and fell under the influence of the Jesuits who were speaking to social justice. Not all of them, but some of them. And uh, then after getting elected, uh, I went to the state legislature in 1960. And Jimmy Davis was the governor. And it was an horrendous period because the Board of Education, the Supreme Court had passed the Board of Education. Bill in in uh, sixty and in in sixty in sixty sixty four. I'm thinking I'm losing my thought there. uh, Fifty four, 1954, and uh, so by the time that decision reached Louisiana to be implemented. Uh, we were called in a session by Jimmy Davis in 1959, and it's at that point where I was faced with what we're often at some time in our lives faced with the decision: is who am I and what do I stand for? And uh, I refused to vote uh, for most of the bills that Jimmy Davis put forward, uh, which were all segregationist measures, and. Uh, It was a nervous period for me, but I just decided I couldn't be a human being as I was if I voted for that stuff. So I became known as a communist and a socialist and an end-lover. Lost a lot of good friends uh, through that period, but it cemented my sense of racial fairness and racial justice. I'm not saying it was perfect, uh, but at least it gave me a direction, which I hadn't had before in my life.
0: And so you, as a result, introduced African Americans to city government.
1: Well, I did. I was—I came out of the out of the uh, state legislature in '65. Was elected city council, and the uh, first thing I did was really to take the Confederate flag out of the chamber, uh, much to the great distress of the white citizens' council and lots of other people, and began to hire very modestly at the councilmanic level, uh, blacks on the city council and on staff positions. And then when I got to be mayor, I had the power to make these appointments. And so we did. And it was not simple, because I didn't know enough blacks to fill the high level positions that we had. I had to rely on many other people. My friend Lola Zelai was a great assistance to me in that regard. And so it was also difficult because many of the blacks or the blacks the that we hired had no knowledge of the inner workings of City Hall, which was understandable. <laughs> no no member of their family had been there. They'd not been in the loop. And so...
0: It's a learning uh, experience for all.
1: I remember Don Hubbard coming to me and, and saying that uh, I kept rejecting some of the people that the various groups were submitting to me and uh, he sat down, he called me Bawana, he had his angry face on, I like Don, he's a friend today, and, and he said, Bawana, your problem is you want super ends, and he didn't use the n-word, he used the whole word, I said, well Don, you're absolutely right, it doesn't do us a damn bit of good to replace an incompetent white with an incompetent black, and I'm not going to do it, now get me somebody who can do the job, uh, and they came forward with the first one was Pete Sanchez, who had been in the United States Army, was a major, and was a terrific guy. And I made sure that that Pete would have success. He had a uh, deputy uh, in that department who had supported Jimmy Fitzmaurice, and under the rules of the game, he was supposed to lose his job. And I called him in, I said, listen, I'm going to put a black man in the head of this department. Would you like to keep your job under those conditions? Yes sir, yes sir, yes sir. So said that I need you to stay at his side and make sure that he succeeds because for the first time whites are going to have a black giving them orders, supervising them. And many are going to do their best to cut his legs out from under him. And I'm going to rely on you to protect him and to guide him until he longer needs you. And I talked to Pete, and I said, Pete, it's your department, and you can do whatever you please. I'm suggesting you keep this fellow at your side until you feel comfortable. When you do, I'll get him another job. And Pete went on to be a very successful head of the department of property management. Now, he was the first of many, but breaking that line was not easy. You just couldn't say it and have it done. You had to work your way through it, and through an institution that was... Uh, rife with segregation.
0: How, how did um, Lolas, um affect you and and what you did both as mayor and in general?
1: Well, we just had a a funeral for Lolis. It was a beautiful event. And everything I say about Lolis, I say as a friend because we were very very close friends. But he was a he was a complicated man, and he was a fighter. Lowless and I, to some extent, were born into the same economic environment, different neighborhoods, but basically the same economic environment. He had good parents. I had good parents. Uh, And Lolis went to Loyola Law School a few years after I did. And uh, somehow I met Lolis, and uh, we developed a relationship. It wasn't intimate at the start. But later it became a very, very close relationship. Now, that doesn't mean we didn't have our differences. Lolis was a difficult person. He was small, argumentative, outspoken, and nothing was ever enough. It was push forward, go faster, move, do this. And he had an outspoken attitude about everything. Now, he defended a lot of people that in the sit-ins, in the the sit-in era and even the Black Panthers. So we were often not on opposite sides, but approaching the same problem from a different aspect. I, was, I had a responsibility to enforce the laws. He had, he had the job to, to defend those who were breaking it. So listen, I've been married for 62 years, married to an absolutely marvelous woman. That doesn't mean that we don't have our differences, but we never let those differences affect our friendship and our love. And that's the way Lolas and I were. <laughs> I've seen myself ask Lolas to get out of the office because he was causing me so much difficulty. But we'd be back again. So it's, uh, he, Lolas married a wonderful woman, and he's had two great kids. Uh, but to understand Lolas, you'd have to go back to the 60s and put yourself at his age in that, in that group. It was a very tumultuous period. There are a number of things that were changing society that we kind of ignore. One, obviously the civil rights legislation, and that was not just a boom, but it was over a period of time was happening. And then you had the interstate highway system that came in across the United States, and it began to change the nature of the local communities. People began to move to suburbia, you start having shopping centers, the little neighborhood grocery stores started going out of the business. The uh, shoe repair shops were going out of business uh, because we were now dealing in in a, more of an electronic age. And television was reaching not its height because it still hasn't gotten there, but at least uh, television was starting to boom as a medium. And those things had a great impact on uh, on how we lived. Uh, it changed the nature of neighborhoods. Uh, we lived in, not with a wall around us, but in a neighborhood that was fairly fairly defined and there weren't that many automobiles. But when we started having all these automobiles come in and people were now, instead of roaming two, two blocks this way and two blocks that way from your house, kids were getting in cars and going a mile away. So neighborhoods didn't break down, but they stopped being the solidified uh, know-your-neighbor-type place that
0: they used to be. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to know, um, I mean, there were so many people who were involved in the civil rights movement at different levels. You obviously, in the institutional world, and Lolis, as you said, as the, the fighter on the outside, but how would you uh, sum up Lolis's character <laughs> And his influence on you.
1: Well, Lola's, first of all, was very intelligent, and he was very widely read. Uh, part of the problem dealing with Lola's is that he was so widely read about worldwide uh, movements, uh, big things, that when you got down to the specifics, uh, he oftentimes didn't understand the, the complications of getting it done But uh, he helped me select people for City Hall. As a matter of fact, after we won, and there's a story about how that happened, uh, Lolas was about to support Billy Gus, who was a good guy, and he was running for mayor, too. And I said, Lolas, I tell you what, why don't you come with me? Let's go to your neighborhood and go to mine and show you how I grew up and how you grew up. And then let's go past Billy Gus's home, which was a beautiful home in the, in the uptown New Orleans. And after we did that, I said, now, Lolis, which of us do you think understands the problem better that you're facing and that we're facing? And I think I convinced him at that point to support me for mayor. And, of course, there were a lot of different groups. I'm not saying Lolis made the entire difference, but it was, it was certainly helpful for me. And then when I got to be mayor, I relied on Lola's uh, oftentimes to run people past him. I didn't know everybody. Uh, I needed a background check, but we didn't have the kind of things that they do at the federal level. So Lola's had a pretty good insight into, into certain people who had mm-hmm. been in other positions and was very free and open in his, uh, in his evaluation of them. So that, that helped me greatly. And I offered Lowellis a job. I wanted, you know, in those days, you want as a politician and you cleared out City Hall and you brought your own people in. Now, you couldn't touch the civil service people, which is another story. But you had quite a few appointments and I wanted Lolas to come with me. And he wouldn't do it. And I said, well, Lowless this is this this we won he said well i don't want to be compromised because he wanted to be free to speak his word whatever he spoke as if working at city hall as a city attorney or some other job <laughs> under me would would limit his his right to say what he wanted to say when he wanted to say it so it i can't no. i can't say enough for Lola he was just wonderful
0: uh, we might have lost just that little bit because of that jet above us so uh, if you would just tie that up again,
1: well, I'd ask Lolas to, to come to work at City Hall with me, and he wouldn't do it and I said, "Well, why he said he didn't want to be compromised i said well lola that's not how the system works we won the, we won the election, and you know in those days, the city hall got at the executive element got cleared out uh, I kept some people, but mostly got cleared out, but he, he said he didn't want to be compromised because he wanted to be able to speak his mind whenever he wanted to speak it, so I ended up hiring his brother, <laughs> who worked in the mayor's office. So, Lawless was a piece of work. Uh, he he did a great deal of work as a lawyer, uh, defending civil rights people, and and uh, he was very helpful to me in more ways than you can imagine. When I kind of think back on it, and I, I do so with tearful, in a tearful way because of his death, but he was uh, he was enormously important to me just somebody to talk to and to understand things that I didn't understand as a white guy.
0: So this has been so interesting because I wish we could all be students of history and know about the antecedents (coughs) to the world we deal with today. So even I, covering this city for so many years, didn't know many of the things you just shared with me. I look forward to um, having another conversation with you very soon uh, we'll continue maybe a, a, a little bit of a kind of looking back, looking forward um, on my show. I'd love to have you on again.
1: All right, Jean. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much, Moon. Um, now we're going to talk with someone who's very much um, involved in the present and the future in New Orleans. She's the new curator at the Contemporary Arts Center, and she is committed to... Um, really making sure that we all get to experience the kind of multidisciplinary work that's being shown at the CAC, both by local artists as well as national artists. And um, I'm so encouraged. I think she's gonna be terrific. And there's a great show open right now that was an open call to artists all over the Gulf Coast. They had hundreds of entries and had to whittle it down, but added people because they just had to, they were so great. And I think you will also enjoy hearing from Aaron, and um, you've got to plan to get to the CAC with the show that's up right now, because it's, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, this weekend is kind of, is this um, essentially one of the uh, big opening night
2: weekends? It is, isn't it? For the CAC?
0: Well, for the whole, um,
2: arts district yeah for the arts district certainly um you know we had our big opening uh, for white linen night for the show um and for our solo shows and for um remember earth but um you know we like to think it's all special (laughs) and we we've had a a really good um a lot of people visiting uh, both locally who haven't been here in a long time which is exciting for me And um, a lot of tourists do, new people, you know, most of our sales have been to non-members and people who are here the first time. So that's really exciting.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So you're getting some kind of um, a little bit of a rush of new visitors. I love it. Well, let's talk about the show because it's really a show that people should see. Um, I was really blown away by it. I just, I've loved a lot of the shows lately at the CSE, but this one is really strong and it was an artist call. So when you have an artist call, you never know what's gonna come in Mm -hmm. and and then you have to select and it's hard, I think, because you really wanna give new artists uh, that you don't know a shot and at the same time, um, artists that you've known and dealt with, you wanna include, so it's hard to select, but um, give us a little bit about the show itself um, and uh, a couple of the artists and um, and we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, Aaron's
2: return. Okay, um, <laughs> well, as I said, Jean, it was um, an open call. We received, I invited a few artists to come in um, to kind of round up the show at the end. Um, but we received hundreds of applications for really? the open call That's from every great. state, every Gulf state. Um, and, you know, it really, I didn't really know what to expect. So this is my first show in my return to the CAC. Um, And I wanted to leave it pretty open. Um, You know, I I went in with not really having, well, you know, I went in with expectations, thinking it would be about certain things. I thought we'd hear about COVID, you know, certainly about flooding and water and these kinds of things. But um, it really, you you know, I started the process kind of, just, you know, I went through kind of my first iteration of getting rid of people who maybe weren't a good fit. You know, some people I pulled for other future shows who are just like, some, some, work, some of the works, some of my favorite works didn't make the show because they were just a better fit for something I had down the line. Um, and so that's always a fun way to kind of re-engage um, in a community that I've been away from for a long time to kind of see what's out there. Um, and then, I, you know, what I was really looking for is how, what narratives emerged. Um, And uh, I was trying to explain my process to a group at UNO about how, you know, I really, I I print everything out and put it on my walls. And, um, you know, once I kind of narrowed it down to about 150 artists start moving things around, seeing what's conceptually happening, seeing what's visually happening, seeing how much space we have. Um, And really the narrative, to me, there is a narrative that emerged and it really was. There was very little talk about COVID, which surprised me. Um, and I mean, it really there's, there's
0: been so much talk about COVID, <laughs> you know, that I think we're just talked out on it in in a way. And and the story right now is is, is uh, ambiguous. Yeah. Um, so we know it's going to continue, but we really don't know what it means. So um, yeah, we've had I, I,
2: on. my sense was there were so many COVID shows that people are just like, um, and I think you know with Ida. Hitting last year, I think it kind of revived a lot of thoughts of Katrina um, and how a lot of things still haven't revi- have, haven't been repaired or revived since Ida. And so, what I was getting was a, from the artists was a sense of um, why why we stay, why we repair. Um, you know, because I think a lot of people outside of this region, why don't you just move? I know. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. in
0: the region, we talk we talk about migrating. And, and ultimately, historically, whole civilizations have had to move due to climate issues. So it's uh, not surprising at all that it would be a topic of conversation. But I think that what you said is that this intention to, to want to be here and come back is so powerful.
2: Yeah, it's home. And I mean, it's home. It's a historical home. It's an ancestral home. You know, we I've been speaking with a lot of indigenous artists about what our show is coming up, um, and this loss of of home, and so um, you know I kind of saw it as there's kind of three kind of main parts of the show. One kind of emerged was kind of this post apocalyptic: what if we all die? What if humans die and this is it? And like, what happens to the earth? And so that was kind of this the, the one aspect of it is. If if the earth starts taking over if if nature starts taking over the earth, because we are no longer players in this Um, and then a big section of it was about. um, Living in the storm repair talking about repair and repair and repair because it's home and you're trying to fix your home and you're trying to sustain your home and your culture. And um, we talk about collaboration with nature in terms of like Quintron's work. Who is you know Hurricane Ida was playing the Weather Warlock, this instrument that Quintron built um, that nature actually plays. So, and then we had the Alluvium Ensemble, which is a group of young composers and um, videographers who are recording nature and then creating um, classical works, uh, music pieces inspired by Ida, so we have like Ida playing, Ida's, Ida playing music and then humans playing Ida, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of this collaboration with nature that we have to live with nature. And then
0: it's it's so important to, to, to understand how we do it innately without really thinking about it, but yet on the other hand, are um, trying to be more intentional Mm -hmm. and understand what do we have to do to help it survive along with us.
2: Absolutely. And then there was some hopeful work in it the work actually there was very little hopeful (laughs) and problem solving work, which I wasn't surprised about honestly. Um, You know, we have um, uh, You know, different works about um, How plastic will eat uh, mushrooms can eat plastic, and these are kind of like this development. And so, mushrooms eat. Pl- mushrooms, plastic. they're they're right now. science is dealing with different strains of mushrooms. That's, that all, be-
0: that's the big problem right now. Is you can't wake up a, in a given day without hearing a new horror story. I, know.
2: That, <laughs> but, I didn't know that. I think this is a good thing. So maybe mushrooms are the thing that comes to save us. You know, um it, I mean, it was an interesting. It was an interesting show, and it was really kind of exciting to see. Um, the breadth of work. But like I said, there, people were, some of it felt defensive about why we stay, um, and, I, and I like that. Um, so, but um, we, I mean, we have so many artists. I originally had hoped to get it down to 30, like this manageable number. And, but then there were a lot of collaborative pieces. So um, we ballooned up to 54 artists. And then once I kind of got the show laid out, I was like, you know what, there's room for more. Um, I enjoy um, packing art, in. I really want to see the CAC as a space where you walk in and you are confronted with art. Um, and that's why I asked to have um, Pippin, Frisbee Calder's work as soon as you walk in. It's a big visual piece. It kind of sets the tone for the show. Um, and, you know, as coming back into the CAC, um, I have a history with the CAC, as you know, and um, I, I received so much from the CAC as a young artist in my 20s. Okay. So
0: well, I, I get the impression, I mean, when I saw the show, I'm um, I, I like, the minute I walked in the door, of course, there's Pippin Frisbee Calder's wall of birds that was, a beautiful piece, very powerful, and uh, it kind of, you know, catches, catches your attention to the variety of species of birds, many of which are threatened, and mm-hmm. I don't know whether the ones that she chose were threatened or not, but um, it, it makes you think about that, and then as you moved up to some of the big installations, they were kind of almost like, I don't know, film sets. They're so extensive, and um, uh, I'm particularly going to want to hear what you have to say about the one that you can walk through that is so threatening in a way. To me, it was threatening, I, I just um, find it uh, to be. And then the, the other um, one that really spreads out in the whole room, but uh, let me let you talk about um, essentially what you're trying to do for the viewer when they come into the CAC.
2: Um, so really, you know, this is kind of a long-term goal and this was the first show I had kind of had that opportunity um, it's really just to let people know they're in an art center upon walking in. Um, when you're passing by the building, I wanna have more presence to the community um, because a lot of people haven't known it was an art center walking by um, or it feels intimidating to go inside. And so I wanna make the space more welcoming and more engaging. Um, one of the good things about the show, and this is the great thing about li- working with living and regional artists is that I would, and we have these long installation periods at the CAC, which is something I've inherited. At first, I was questioning, but now I really see the value in. Is we can bring the artist in and allow them to work on the installation, own work, work alongside a preparator, and so it allows them to. Some of these painters, you know, I think Andrea Ruccio, um, who did the big piece upstairs um, on the second floor, uh, Divine Cinnabar, um, even James Flynn these people, these artists have never had that kind of space to experiment, even Luba Zergwitz, Zergwitz I'm gonna murder her last name, Zergwitz. Um, you know, she said she was so used to sending her works in kind of this grid formation. And it, once it was gone, it was gone. But I allowed her to come in for two weeks and install her own work. And it really changed the narrative of her work um, and kind of the direction of how she wants to work in installation of her pieces. Mm. Uh, cause she really had an opportunity too, to work with the artists cause the other artists were in the room working on their pieces as well. So then we start having these conversations between regional artists and it becomes um, kind of this this um, really a good community, I think building opportunity to engage with other artists who are working in similar themes and um, really help the work grow in the space. Um, second floor, Ann Maria Ruccio had, this was her first time in, um, she's a painter. I mean, she comes back from a background as a set designer and now she has been doing painting. And this was her first time doing an installation piece. And so there was a lot of ability to experiment over those several weeks. And, and that's something that I just really loved about the show. Even James Flynn has never shown his work in, he is the the um, uh, the piece about porn and his um, experience, you know, basically as a mariner bringing corn back and forth across the world um, with these light up, you know, light sensitive acrylics. Um, He's never shown in that way. He's never shown in such a scale. And it was really exciting to be able to do that with him. Um, So, so I assume you also
0: have done or will do uh, some tours with people so that uh, folks can hear what you're saying. It, it, I, I think it's, it's really important. Art, you, you have two ways to experience art for a non-artist. One, is to, um, one is, to, is, to, uh, is to walk into a space and never having seen the art before, not really understand what you're looking at. Um, and, and, and the other is to talk either with the artist or the presenter. Oh my God, I can't turn these phones off. Hold on, I've got to put you on. I think that um, people appreciate art more it than can really understand it and, um, uh, and, and feel comfortable uh, with it. And so one of the things that I I know it's so important for people to hear from either the artist or the presenter of the uh, exhibition to understand more and be drawn in because people, once they get drawn in uh, to the artist or or the art making process or the exhibition process, it it makes a big difference in them really becoming engaged and wanting to continue to, to come see art. So I know that that's something that the CAC cares about. And I'm going to assume that you're trying to do that with this, um, the uh, earth show. So uh, tell me about that.
2: Well, you know, so I always say that I'm, you know I am an artist first and a teacher, a mom. And I, you know, these are kind of things that really load my practice. And I, I came into the curatorial field as an artist Um, curating shows for me and my friends and um, accessibility to art is one of my biggest. um, like One of my most important things is that I don't appreciate being alienated from art and I don't appreciate alienating people from art. I also don't want to reinterpret people's stories for them. And so coming into the CAC, you know, they kept asking me about what my vision was in terms of like what I wanted to do with the CAC and I said and the, the honest truth is that I won't know until I'm there until I'm talking to the artist until I'm part of the community because I don't see my job as um I would say found art artist um I'm not looking to create my own work using these materials and so I make sure that every you're
0: delivering your own message you're really not trying to deliver your own message you're trying to facilitate other narratives from other artists
2: and that is that is you've set you nailed it on the head I want to open I you know I always say um, you know I've, I found myself in this position you know I'm my own art practice suffers from being here um, because I don't have the time because this is a lot of work um, but while I'm in this position which I feel really privileged to be in because you know growing up or I'm Native American, like grew up from an extended family of of artists and artisans, we made crafts for powwows, Um, you know, we, I wasn't, it was never anticipated that I would go to college. Um, And I was, you know, the first person in my family to graduate. Um, You know, I find myself in this position. And My job, I see my job as to open the door to this world that is really hard to enter for a lot of people um, while I can and help build artists um, to that next level. Artists who are ready to take off, uh, artists who are struggling with kind of the art world. I want to help give them access. I
0: do, I don't think people understand and appreciate how hard it is for artists to literally deal with the so-called art world as well as the public as well as their own uh um self and their own kind of cohort of artists that they work with those are all different universes that they have to juggle and it's not easy
2: it's not you know so you know i'm I'm trying to help people tell their stories i'm not trying to tell their stories for them and so sometimes it you know and even some of the i always make sure there's an extended label for each artist that is really important to me that they are able to have voice in their story. Some of them I have to edit because just for legibility, because maybe, you know, after a conversation with them, I find like maybe there's a better way to explain, help them explain what they're trying to say. Some artists, I just leave it in the first person because, you know, it's, it's especially some of the older established artists, I'm like, I can't write it better than you said it. So I'm just going to let you speak for yourself. Yeah. Um, and that, that's why it's so important to me to have that kind of openness Any traveling show, we will be dealing with with exhibitions that are traveling and it's important for me to bring in kind of this national art, because there is an audience for that in New Orleans, not everyone can go to New York, not everyone can go to LA and see this work so I want to have an opportunity to bring that in so. Our Community can like see what's going on out in the outside world, but I
0: I just want to stop you there and say how important I feel that is because when we first founded the CAC it was really important to me that we show the work of local artists for the purpose of people, knowing who is in the community making art and underst- and again, learning about it, understanding it and purchasing it so that artists can continue to live here and be sustained. But I always said from the beginning it was also important to see work from elsewhere, to see the context, the sort of the global context of what's happening in the arts, to see how the art that's being made here fits into that. And it does. And I think that also helps people understand uh, what art that's being made here is about through that. So I'm I'm really happy that that's part of your, your commitment. Um, Erin, let me let me move on to ask you, um, not only about this show, and first of all, we need to tell people how long it's going to be open and what the hours are so we can say, come on, come on, y'all come but also um, tell me a little bit about what's coming up this season, uh, this year. And um, I, I kind of want people, you know, I, I think the CAC has always had a little bit of a problem of not being well understood because it's it's kind of not as clear cut a mission as say NOMA or, or even Ogden. Ogden, you know, it's Southern art and it's, it's both traditional as well as contemporary, which I'm very happy that they chose to do that because that again, just like the international versus the local um, interplay, the interplay between the traditional and the current is really important. But um, I think that uh, we do a lot of different things and the multidisciplinary aspect of the CSE, which is also critically important because artists no longer work in one one, uh, genre. They work in different disciplines helping people understand that is very important too. So you you have a task in in getting people to really say, oh yeah, I know what the CAC is about and I wanna be there.
2: Well, (laughs) I'm learning. Coming up, what's coming up? Coming up, so um, coming up, we have um, this Friday, we have Black Ophelia Returns, which is part of the Requiem uh, for Stranger. So we have Requiem, and then we have Requiem for Stranger um, in October, there will be some performances the 14th through the 16th, Um, and that's gonna be a performance piece. Um, And then the exhibitions we have coming up. So um, this current show closes September 25th, and this is both um, Remember Earth and our two solo residency shows, which is suspended by artist Britt Ransom. And Oh Holy Filth by, by A.R. Havel, um, Chiamaro, Chopaflor and Coco Barrios, which is about sex work. Um, it's de- sex workers as deities. It's about sex work built by sex workers, um, which is a really exciting show. And then opening October 21st, we'll be doing a show, on, a show about water. So H2O will be a show focusing on water, um, both protecting of water, um, the beauty of water, poetry of water, and um, and that'll be on the first floor. We've, so far, we have Angela Faz, uh, Maria Lino, the Alluvium Ensemble, Dan Alley, uh, Sibyl Sag- Zagers Redford, um, dan and Ruth Kleinman, Chinupa Hunskalager. Um, and we're still in process of getting some of the final artist contracts signed. So this will be a water-heavy show, talking about water protectors. We're going to do some program- public programming events to build water shields for the front lines of the water protectors out west, the Indigenous water protectors, um, and that's going to be a public event that'll be incorporated into show. And then on the second floor, we'll be having a show called um, Responsibilities and Obligations, which is curated by three Lakota women from South Dakota and uh, Lale- Lalea Long Soldier, Mary Bordeaux, and Clementine Bordeaux. So these are three artists, and cur- indigenous artists, curators, and it is um, a show about kind of this pan-indigenous concept of being a good relative, of being a good relation, and what that means. It's a word that isn't bit, you know able to be translated into English in a certain way, but it really is the core concept of why people always think indigenous cultures are one with nature. And it really comes down to the basic language that is part of that culture. Um, So it's going to be exploring this mainly through the Lakota language, um, how we're related to earth, we're related to rocks, we're related to water, and how we have this obligation to be a good relative.
0: So that's so interesting, because I think um, we are all conscious of the names of things uh, of indigenous communities. For one thing, a lot of our names that we still carry for places um, and wherever we are, are are traced back to indigenous groups. Uh, the perfect example that everybody always points out is Chapitoulas. So right. Chapitoulas Street, you, you know right away, well, that's not a French word. <laughs> it's not a Spanish word you know it's not African it's not German so um it, it's very obviously indigenous and I just you know every once in a while I just have to go cruise into the into the uh, blogosphere and and check out um, what what uh, is being said about the things that I'm interested in and I and I just this past weekend was looking into uh, bullbancha which is of course the the uh, Native American name for New Orleans and for um, kind of the center of New Orleans where people met, and it means a place of many tongues, many, many people. Um, But what uh, what's interesting to me about it is that um, I never heard of that word until a year ago, not even a year ago, less than a year ago. So some of these words are hidden. Mm -hmm. And, um, But the meaning when I found out that Bulbansha meant place of many lands and tongues, the uh, people that brought home exactly how we still think of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Tend to think of it as European African indigenous but um, it's clear that early on when it was just indigenous there were all these different tribes. So those different tribes and, 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 and Native American nations were, um, you know, also interacting in a way similar to the way we interact today with all of our different European influences. So I think it's fascinating. But we know those words, we hear those names that are in English, very clear cut. It'll be something like a walking dog or, you know, <laughs> I'm not a, a great at calling out the right name, but... <laughs> uh, that's what you're talking about, right?
2: Yeah. And so, um, but so it'll be an interesting show, kind of talking. It'll all be Indigenous women. Um, you know, a lot of these cultures are matrilineal, including my own. Um, and I just think it'll be a nice tie into the water show. It'll be a nice tie into um, Remember Earth in terms of how we shift our language, how we shift our thoughts um, at their core and how we can be better relatives, how we can be to to a rock, to the water. Um, And right now I'm in talks with some um, regional indigenous women artists because whenever we bring a show into the CAC that is a traveling show or a curator not from this region, it is very important to me that we tie in some of our regional artists, as part of the show, not as a sideshow, show, but as part of the exhibition. Very important to me and the work that we broke, I don't wanna bring a show here that is irrelevant to what we're doing. And it could be a national show. I absolutely love to bring in national shows, but it needs to be um, accessible. It needs to um, be relevant and it needs to cause a ripple effect in New Orleans and the region um for why we're bringing it here because art isn't especially contemporary art is bigger than just a pretty picture um it's, it's bigger than um it, you know there's so much social social message behind it um, and i think that that's so important to explore and um it's just part of, of our education as as established artists as up-and-coming artists as children um, and you know i'm raising my family here whether or not I'm at the CAC, I'm still in New Orleans. And so very selfishly, I want this place to function in a way that it uplifts our community, it uplifts our art scene and um, you know, really gives back to the art community in the way that I received from the CAC when I was in my early 20s.
0: Let's, uh, I wanted to talk about that for just a little bit. So uh, uh, in, in just a, f- a few sort of poetically chosen words,
2: Okay.
0: <laughs> describe describe how, how you remembered New Orleans from when you were first here, and how it seems to you now, and looking forward to what you just said. How you would like to help um, change it uh, and and uh, help it accomplish. I talk a lot about New Orleans accomplishing its destiny because we are such an important cultural center, but Mm -hmm. we are not recognized adequately for um, our creative output uh, internationally. So that's something that's very important to me. So um, start with, you know, uh, what are a few words that you would have used to recall what New Orleans meant to you, your first round, your first um, and then uh, how it seems now and, and, and what you're thinking about for its future.
2: Well, um, so when I was started, That's a start, small question. When I started at the CAC, um, you know, I was working alongside artist Rashad Newsom, who has <laughs> now taken off into the um, stratosphere, <laughs> the big art world. Um, there was just a lot of energy around the arts. There's a lot of room for experimentation Um, that I didn't feel in New York, I didn't feel in San Francisco. Um, You know, I lived in New Mexico. I've I've lived a lot of places and I've never felt the freedom to kind of explore those really weird (laughs) places in art. Um, And that's what really always drew me back. And I also felt that New Orleans art scene, whether it's visual art, performing arts or music, people show up and there is a community of people who will show up and support you. And that's not true in any city, every city. Um, So that's kind of how I remember New Orleans is that I could have a weird fashion show out in the bywater and people would show up like in droves, like gallery owners, curators, people would just show up just to see the spectacle. Um, And that was really important for me to allow me to experiment and grow as an artist. Um, I didn't feel stifled. Um, And so, that's one thing. And then the second was the same question.
0: (laughs) Now, what, how does it strike you now?
2: Well, you know, I've been back since February. Um, And I, I think after Katrina, you know, I, I left the year following Katrina um, and I've been back and forth. And I think, you know, since the establishment of prospect and kind of these bigger national um, facing shows, I, I definitely, See, so you know, we still have that element. It almost becomes, you know, this kind of. I feel like Prospect is interesting in that it is a three-year thing that really kind of ramps up over time, and I see people already starting to create um, in those kind of ways. And there's there's a lot of more established artists coming in from. And after Katrina, um, you know, a lot of college graduates, MFA students. that kind of thing so i feel like there's more like these pop-up kind of galleries out in the bywater mid-city um which i think is great um a a lot more there were definitely like kind of these diy pop-ups happening before Katrina, but i feel like that's happening so much more now um i look at um you know out in the bywater avenue st claude
0: avenue
2: well i was going to say st claude avenue especially and I think that's fabulous because to me, that's kind of the future of art. Now, and really how I got into curating was by curating. People are like, how did you what, How did you become a curator? And I was like, I curated. And I curated. And I curated and sometimes on my own dime. Um, and I'm, my artist friends would get together and we'd curate and that's just what we did to show the work we wanted to show. Um, so that that's encouraging to me, as uh, seeing that realm of, of artists really stepping up um, in that sense.
0: Um, that sounds great to me. Okay, now going forward, where, what, what if, if you had to describe, and we, we started out this whole interview saying that you don't have a deliberate mission that would overwhelm the narratives of artists, yet you must have, in a sense, and we've been talking about it, but again, maybe um, summarize uh, how you uh, would like to have an impact on the city and, and how you hope the city will evolve regardless of what you do, but just how you see its future in the creative
2: realm. Um, that's easy. Uh, my, I always joke that you know it took me 40, reali- 40 years to realize that like the way to be successful is to be yourself and like I always joke about this because like we learned that in kindergarten right Um, but I think um, like recently we had some artists come over from Japan and they were looking for new sources of funding Um, so they wanted to look at three major art markets in the U.S. um, to kind of look at the model of and they went to New York LA and New Orleans. Oh my goodness funding is not one
0: of our our strong skill sets. (laughs) But,
2: But what they are looking for is uh, they were looking for what they saw in Japan as the key art scenes in in the US. And to me that was very exciting. Um, because I think that New Orleans is just so like it's just so New Orleans. And what I would love to see is instead of us going outside of outside to look at what other artists are doing in New York, in LA, you know, um
0: all over the world but so more connecting between our um art community and others
2: yes and i but i think that our, our seeds kind of have to start here and we have to like really embrace our identity as new orleans artists as regional artists and then look at other artists outside who are working in similar ways with similar concepts instead of the opposite way of seeing what everybody else is doing and then seeing what we're doing right um, I think it needs to start with us and i think that we need to kind of claim that status, because New Orleans is such a unique and vibrant, and you know, this, the city of many tongues. Um, that's why people come here. So why would we try to change something, which is one of our greatest strengths?
0: And I, and I think that, you know, the challenge of course is um, getting people uh, off Bourbon Street. And I don't mean to say they shouldn't stroll down Bourbon Street at some point, but, and, and out, into the city to experience all the different kinds of creativity throughout the city. And that's something, by the way, Aaron, that I'm focused on. I'm trying to develop in programming that I'm involved with ways of pushing people into the neighborhoods and mm-hmm. identifying location. This comes partly from my concern over live music. And, and so the, the dialogue about live music was yes or no. And I don't think that's the right Uh, It's not a black and white. It's not a um, a, a duality. It has to do with finding locations that are optimum for presenting work outside that will not do harm to residents. So it's really the residential neighborhoods that are difficult for uh, presenting. And, Mm -hmm. but there's lots of places throughout the city in little business districts in parks in in vacant lots and vacant blocks, where we can be presenting the work, especially of people from those neighborhoods. So we'll talk more about this. This show is not about what I'm doing, but that's I
2: would love to have that conversation.
0: I look forward to talking about that with you. I I'm thrilled that you're here and um, this I'm thrilled that you're at the CAC. Um, you know, CAC is definitely home based for my whole art right. life, and um, I'm I'm really uh, hoping that uh, you you will be able to bring it forward and do exactly what you're talking about, uh, making it more accessible and welcoming and, uh, to folks who um, may not have that comfort level yet uh, with uh-huh. art. And um, I think it does that to a great extent, but we just have to you know keep pushing it out there. Yeah. And I get the impression that you're definitely doing that.
2: That's the goal. So to make I fun.
0: encourage people to come out this weekend and see, um, tell me your full title for Earth.
2: Is Remember, remember Earth. Question. Remember
0: one. Earth. <laughs> and uh, the hours over the weekend are? 7 to 5. And it is uh, 900 Cam Street. And that is literally just off Lee Circle. If you, yeah, Everybody knows where Lee Circle is, or, or whatever it's going to be uh, newly named, hopefully. <laughs> Tannin is the first artist who put art at that site, challenging its role as a place to celebrate Lee, Robert E. Lee, a confederate he put boulders around the um, the, uh, the the circle, uh, pointing to north, south, east, west, trying to help people with their compass of New Orleans. Uh, right? I,
2: all, have, so I have I have have had a print of
0: that hanging on my wall since How I have. Do <laughs> I
2: have a drawing. I have a print of that. Um, every place I move, that's hung on my wall.
0: Well, that compass is something I'm definitely involved with, trying to again move people north, south, east, and west in the city. And sounds like that's a part of um, what you're going to be committed to. So, welcome home. I'm thrilled, and uh, have a have a great season that is just kicking off. And um, uh, feel free to call me anytime with whatever you would like to share with uh, our audience, which is a very diverse audience. I always say. Um, our invitations to listen and to the newsletter go out to people from uptown garden clubs to downtown radical. On- <laughs> so um, we, we, wow. we need a lot of people.
2: Awesome. Um,
0: thank you. Thank you so, so much for taking the time. And I'm sorry about all the crazy interruptions. I mean, it's not every day that your car is totaled. <laughs>
2: you know, <laughs> know. And your husband's
0: in the hospital with a, with a fractured knee. Uh. And, and, Sort of a crazy thank moment
2: but the interview in spite of all that
0: really um, all right well thank you so so much erin antioch and we we should talk an, again more about your indigenous roots because that's fascinating too but that'll be the next time all right,
2: all right. Thank, thank you, you. bye bye